Urban History Makers. I'm Matt Prater. Today we have author and speaker from the US, Shane Willard. Welcome to History Makers, Shane. It's good to be here. Thank you for having me. Now, Shane, uh, you're out here visiting in Australia, uh, involved with uh, a guy by the name of Clark Taylor, quite well known in, uh, in the church circles in, in Australia here. Uh, tell us, what do you think about Australia? Oh, I love it. I've been coming now for um, four years, and uh, this is all I do for a living, and Australia is sort of a main stop uh, for, for what we do. And um, there's a lot of great churches in Australia. I've, I've spoken down at the Gold Coast quite a bit and up to Ormo, and there's just everywhere I go, it seems to be like the kingdom of God is really at present and at work there, and it's, it's a fantastic sort of environment. I really love your nation. Fantastic. Now, you um, uh, grew up in like a Christian family in, yes. in the States. Tell us a bit about your upbringing. Uh, well, I grew up in a Christian home uh, my whole life. I mean, my, my upbringing is a little bit strange because I, I was uh, brought up in an old school Pentecostal sort of environment. Like uh, my grandmother has never cut her hair in her life. She's never worn slacks in her life. She never wore makeup, never worn jewelry. And she was doing this to try to sort of appease God, like sort of appease, uh, make sure God stayed nice to her. And um, so I had that sort of element in it. And then I was discipled at an independent fundamental premillennial Baptist school. And so those two systems, they're very diametrically opposed to one another in terms of their philosophy of how to worship and and this sort of thing. But they both sort of agreed on the thing that basically everything you do is a sin and God is really, really upset at, at you. And so you have to do things to make sure God stays unupset. And so when I grew up, it was all about um, making sure you were spiritually disciplined enough to make sure that God sort of uh, lost his wrath towards you. And um, and so if if you did that, then then that was fine. And, and so it was sort of a, an odd um, journey for me. It was good in one sense. Every good, every bad thing has good things to it. I mean, it was good in the sense that spiritual disciplines are good to develop. And it was good in the sense of learning to pray. And, and it was good in the sense of honoring uh, community and church and things like this. That, those were good things. But in my own walk with God, what I found was is that it produced a situation where I would go to bed at night uh, really wondering if God liked me. And, um, and you know, it's just an odd situation that he gave his life for me, and it, it says he commended his love towards me, and that before I ever responded to him, he still died for me. And yet, I'd go to bed at night uh, with these feelings. I, I, I would go to bed at night with a belief system, because the, the, particularly the Baptist school were really big on doctrines, and they taught us the doctrine of justification. So I, I really, which is a common doctrine that everybody would believe in that's in evangelical Christianity, but I would go to bed at night believing the doctrine of justification, but feeling guilty. And it was an odd sort of thing. You believe you're innocent, but you feel guilty. And so I had to go on a journey of sort of meshing um, what I knew in my head to be true and what I was feeling in my heart. And I, and I had to go through a journey of, of, of meshing those experiences to where I could really get to a point where um, God, in, in some sort of way, my walk with him could make a little bit more sense. And tell me, uh, you have a, a, an interest in uh, Hebrew thinking. Uh, you've been mentored by a Christian guy who's been trained as a rabbi. Correct. Tell us about that. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, years ago, I, I was sitting on the banks of the Ashley River in Charleston, South Carolina, and, um, and Pastor Clark and I were um, talking, and he said, Shane, you know, if you want miracles uh, to come out of your hands, you've got to learn to think like a Hebrew. 
to which I just simply said, well, what does that mean? And, and he said, he said he wasn't sure he, that, that that was the journey God was taking him on. And he was sort of seeking out how to think like a true Hebrew. And, uh, and so I just kind of put that in the back of my head and just, you know, off to the side. And, and I didn't really know what that meant. Well, uh, maybe a year and a half later, I was at a pastor's meeting. And at this pastor's meeting, they were talking about this guy who had just come into our state, and um, he had uh, supposedly all of his rabbi training. And I heard stories, and, and you didn't know whether these stories were true. You know how stories go amongst pastors. It's <laughs> it was whatever. So I, I I was sitting there, and, and they said that he made his board go through an 18-month Torah training before they were allowed to be on his board, and this and that and the other. And, and so I just... We should just stop there. So some people might be sure what the Torah is. Do you want to... Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. A Torah is just the first five books of the Bible, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. But in a broader sense, uh, the word Torah, in the New Testament, a lot of times they translate it law, but it really misses the point. The word Torah just means God's teaching for the best kind of life. Basically, it was life instructions, um, how to live the best. And so um, he made them do that. So I just called him one day, and I said, um, I said, Pastor, I am, I'm in a journey to learn how to think like a Hebrew, and I really don't know where to start. Um, would you teach me to read the Bible through Hebrew eyes? And uh, would you mentor me? And he said, sure. So he lives three hours and 15 minutes away. And so I drive for three hours and 15 minutes. And then we meet for about six or seven hours. And then I go home. So when you meet with your Hebrew mentor, what, what do you go through? Well, a, a variety of different things. Like uh, the, the first time we ever met together, um, we spent the first probably four or five meetings at five and six hours a time. We, we would spend that um, learning Hebrew hermeneutics. Now, hermeneutics is just a big word. It sounds pretty scary, but all it is is it's principles of biblical interpretation. Or really, the word hermeneutics just is principle of interpreting any kind of literature. And so the Hebrew people... Have had um, certain principles by which they interpreted the Bible. So he started with that. And then with basic imagery, um, for instance, um, the Hebrew language, which our scriptures were written in Hebrew and then translated to all kinds of different languages. Um, the Hebrew language originally was pictures, which makes sense because they came out of Egypt. And I never thought about it, but that just makes total sense. And so the Hebrew people, all the way to Babylon, so you're talking about Moses, David, these main writers of this, the Bible, when they wrote the Bible, each letter was a picture. So every Hebrew word is, every Hebrew letter is a picture. So every Hebrew word is a comic strip. And so he, it's the alphabet is called Paleo Hebrew and it just it's just a it's a picture sort of version of the Hebrew language. And so if you just had um Strong's Concordance or uh, ESORT or any Bible program that will tell you the words and tell you the spellings, then you could put the pictures on it and see the comic strip. I, I'll give you one example that's a, an easy one that's that's very uh very applicable. The word the English word we translate iniquity is the Hebrew word avon. Um, a, V, N, or in Hebrew, Ein, Vav, and Nun. Well, the picture, so there's three letters, three pictures. The first picture is an I. The second picture is a hook. And the third picture is fish multiplying. So the A is an I, and the Vav is, or the V is a hook, and the noon is fish multiplying. It looks like a crescendo, one becoming two, becoming four, becoming eight. So when a Hebrew person read iniquity, they read whatever your eye hooks to multiplies. So whatever, whatever you're focused on is going to get bigger 
to your life, which which actually um, should give us a real lesson on grace, because um, there was three levels to sin in the Hebrew culture. You had iniquity, which was your eye hooking to something and it getting bigger. Then that created level two, which was called sin. Sin was when you're drawn away by your own lust and enticed, that when you your eye gets hooked to something, uh, that something gets so big and it creates a lust. When that lust draws you away, that's called sin. Transgression is when you actually do something about it. Uh, so you actually steal it or whatever it is that, that you're doing. So you had iniquity, then sin, then transgression. And of course, in the Old Testament, you couldn't prosecute anybody for iniquity because you wouldn't know if they had it. But transgression, if someone transgressed the law, you could do that. Well, the Bible says that we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all. So in other words, Jesus doesn't just forgive you for what you've done. Jesus forgives you all the way back to where your eye hooked to something. So for any listener out there who might think that what you've done is outside the realm of God's grace, maybe you feel like um, there's no way God could like you because of what you've done. Uh, The grace of God not only extends to what you did, it extended all the way back to where you thought about it. You're listening to History Makers, and today we're speaking to author and speaker Shane Willard. We'll have more after this.
You're listening to History Makers, and this week we're speaking to author and speaker Shane Willard. We're talking about the Hebrew mind. It's fascinating. Listen in. Now, the other thing you mentioned to me is you know, the definition of the word born again. Mm. Uh, tell us about the, the Hebrew thinking behind that. Well, it, uh, all over the world in churches on Sunday uh, or whenever we do meetings, at the, typically at the end of the meeting, uh, the pastor, whoever's running the meeting, will stand up and say, you need to be born again. And, and that's a good thing to say, and we ought to say that. But in Jesus' whole life, he only said it once. Um, that we know of. Now, there's probably unrecorded instances, but that we know of, it was one time. And that was to a man named Nicodemus. And and so you start asking questions like, why was he different than anybody else? I mean, everywhere else he's saying, repent, believe in me. Who do you say that I am? I mean, there's one time where you, you if you look at the, the New Testament and you look at salvation experiences in the New Testament, they were all different. You, you had a tax collector in a tree giving half of what he has to the poor, and Jesus goes, okay, salvation's come to you. And you, you've got, man, you've got one paralyzed guy being lowered in from the roof. And it says, and Jesus saw the faith of his friends and proclaimed his sins forgiven. I mean, Jesus is just bent on making sure that people get reconciled to him. And um, but to this one guy, he says, "No, you need to be born again." And uh, and that's an odd sort of statement until until we realize that in in the Hebrew culture there was only two types of people: there was firstborns, and there was secondborns. And this will change the way you read the whole Bible once you understand this cultural law. Um, firstborns always get justice, and secondborns always get mercy. So firstborns was anybody who was born first. So they would be set up in a way where they had to get justice. Now, they were compensated for that in, in something called the double portion. So the double portion was given to the firstborns as a compensation for all the justice they had to do. Like they had to be the judge for the whole family. They, they, had to be, they also were responsible for the sins of the whole family because it was a cultural axiom that says anyone that judges has to be willing to be judged. And Jesus said, judge not lest you be judged. So, so it's this sort of thing. They also, um, which was an odd sort of responsibility, they had to make sure that if any of their brothers died, that they married all of their wives. So you could see where the double portion didn't go to their pockets. The double portion went to take care of all these women and children that were their responsibility. And so they were always in a position of justice. And, and you see this uh, time and again in Scripture. Like uh, David commits adultery with Bathsheba. The firstborn out of her womb dies as the justice for the sin. But the secondborn was Solomon, and he got mercy, and God blessed him, and actually he became the light of Messiah. Um, in, in the story about Noah, it says Ham uncovered his nakedness. But, uh, and God didn't like that, so God curses Ham, but it says, but Ham could not receive the curse which is an odd sort of statement. God says, I curse you, and Ham says, no thanks. That's odd. Until you understand, it says, but but Ham's firstborn son, Canaan, could. See, Ham was a secondborn. He had to receive mercy, but the justice passed to his firstborn son. Um, that's why the firstborn out of every womb of every animal had to be killed in order to redeem all the otherborns. So firstborns always get the justice. Secondborns always get the mercy. Well, the Bible says that when we were born, we were born in Adam, for Adam is the firstborn. So when we're born, we're born in a position where we receive justice. We're responsible for our own sin. It's, it's, just, it's just not a nice situation. But the Bible says that when we get saved, we get moved from in Adam to in Christ, for Christ is the second Adam. So in the first Adam, we get justice, but in the second Adam, we get mercy.
And that's what it means to be born again. It means to be moved from a position of justice to a position of mercy. Nicodemus was a Pharisee, and all Pharisees were firstborns. So he's saying, look, as a, you, you, I'm gonna, Jesus was simply using something that would have been common to his life, which is, Nicodemus, you're a firstborn, and you know you're responsible for the sins of your old family, and you know you're responsible for your own sin. So you can't get to heaven like that. The only way to inherit eternal life is to be born again, is to be in a position of mercy. And Nicodemus understood that analogy, and he was so keen. Remember, he said, he said, well, if you'll just show me how to get back in my mom's womb, I'll do it. Well, that's pretty keen. And so, so but, but God said, no, 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 you could be born of water and of spirit. So God was simply providing a way for a man who all he knew was justice to receive mercy. Now, there might be people listening now that are thinking, you know, that makes sense to me. I, I need that mercy. Hmm. Would you speak to those listeners about how they would approach God and, and, and find that forgiveness and that mercy? Yeah, sure. The, 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 ever, all of us need mercy. Um, the, there's a wrestling match between justice and mercy all the way through the Bible. Um, and I would just simply say to you, in your, in your normal life, um, one of the best ways to receive mercy yourself is to make sure you're merciful to others. Um, James chapter 2 says, Judgment without mercy will be shown to everyone who's not merciful, for, just, for mercy triumphs over justice. And so in your own heart, I would examine it about how you respond to others. But when it comes to God, um, I would just simply say this, that, that all of us are in a position of, of justice and in need of mercy. And part of approaching God with this is understanding his heart. In Romans chapter 8, 23, it says this about God. It says that Jesus longs to be the firstborn over many brothers. Well, that doesn't make any sense unless you understand what I just said. Well, if Jesus longs to be the firstborn over many brothers, that means that you're approaching a God who longs to take the justice so that you can have the mercy. So when you're approaching a God who is longing to give you mercy and actually as a price for that is willing to take the justice himself, that should take some of the blinders and some of the walls down. And so we can approach God just as we are. And simply, there, there's, there's no cookie-cutter way to do it. Um, there's no uh, one prayer that does anything. You look at the salvation experiences in the New Testament, they were all different. One guy is pounding his chest asking for mercy. One guy just says, please remember me. One guy had the right friends. One guy gave half of what he had to the poor. But what's true of all of them is this, is that they all responded to God. Every one of them responded to God. They were moved by some compassion that they saw in God, and they responded to it. All of them made that response towards God, and then God does the rest. You're listening to History Makers, and today we're speaking to author and speaker Shane Willard. We'll have more after this.
You're listening to History Makers, and this week we're speaking to author and speaker Shane Willard. Friends of mine have heard you speak, and they said, you've got to ask him about the Ten Commandments. Mm-hmm. To get him to teach on that. Can you tell us, um, when you share your, your messages and your seminars about the Ten Commandments, what's your, mm-hmm. what's your message you bring? Well, um, that's, that's a big question. Uh, the Ten Commandments, um, for, for, just as an observation, first of all, the word command is not in there. And the word commandment is not in there. Um, we put the construct around it. And so um, the Ten Commandments to the ancient Near Eastern Hebrew people was a, what they called it, a ten-word ketubah. Now, a ketubah was simply a marriage contract. In, in essence, the Ten Commandments was God's marriage proposal to a group of slaves. It was God, I'll try to summarize it in one minute, that God was taking a group of people who had been slaves for 430 years, and he's trying to make a bride out of them. He's trying to teach them that they're worth something. He's trying to uh, to teach them. Basically, he's trying to teach them how to be human again. Uh, they lost their humanity in 430 years of slavery. In, in that culture, if they wanted to kill you, they killed you. If they wanted to steal, they steal. If they wanted your wife, they raped her. It, it, was, it was a culture that said, you are worth less than me. Therefore, I will take your dignity away. So for 430 years, they had no dignity. So God was trying to create a society. In Exodus 19, it says, you're going to be for me a kingdom of priests. In other words, we're going to create a kingdom, and it's going to be so good, you're going to show the whole world what God looks like. And so he said, we're going to create this culture, and in this culture, it's going to be so blessed that, that, that everybody's going to want to end on it. And when you look at the Ten Commandments, you have to ask the question, how would the first people who heard it have thought? I mean, these people, 430 years of slavery, and they hear, you should take a day off. No one's thinking, well, that's the law. Everyone's thinking, yes, we get a day off. That's fantastic. Um, You shall not murder. Wait a minute. So in our new culture, you can't kill me just because you can? That was revolutionary, these people. In in Egyptian culture, if someone was bigger, stronger, faster, had more weapons, they could just kill you just because they could. So God is trying to teach a group of people how to respect the basic dignity that there comes in being made in the image of God. I I love in the Ten Commandments as a marriage proposal. You, You look at the Ten Commandments as a marriage proposal, and it just makes sense. Don't have any other gods before me. In other words, we're going to be married. I'm going to be number one. Don't have idols. In other words, don't carry pictures of your old boyfriends around. Um, don't use my name in vain. In other words, don't sign checks I wouldn't sign. I mean, these are all sort of marriage language. It's all, it's all sort of marriage word. But my favorite is the first word of the Ten Commandments. It says this. In English, it says this. I am the Lord your God. And God spoke all of these words saying, I am the Lord your God. So the first word is, I am the Lord your God. Which in Hebrew, you can say that easily. Jehovah Elohim. But there's an extra word in there in Hebrew. And the word is anochi, A-N-O-C-H-Y, anochi. And once again, every Hebrew letter is a picture, so every Hebrew word is a comic strip. When you put the pictures on anochi, this is what you get. That your authority is multiplying inside the hedge of praise and submission. In in other words, the, the, the first word of the Ten Commandments is grace. I want to make you bigger. And, and if you adhere to this way of life, this way of life is not meant to hold you back. I'm not trying to create another slave driver. That's the last thing you need. I'm actually trying to make you bigger. In essence, God is saying, I am committed to making you bigger, to taking you from slavery to freedom, to restoring your dignity. Welcome to being human again. Man, that is good news. I'm going to have to read through that stuff again. I'm going to, listen, I'm going to have to listen to this on the website, I think, and, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, write this down. I'll use it in one of my messages coming up. But no, I, I really uh, have been impressed to uh, 
to hear about uh, your ministry and uh, what's the best website people can go to to find information about you? Yep, they can go to www.shanewillard.org, S-H-A-N-E-W-I-L-L-A-R-D. We have a lot of our resources there for sale. We also have free downloads. And uh, coming very soon, um, I'm starting an online Bible mentoring program where I'm going to teach people um, how to read the Bible through Hebrew eyes. Wonderful. Well, mate, I have to sign up to that. <laughs> uh, of course, there'll be a link to that website at historymakersradio.com. And you can uh, listen to this interview again uh, and download that from the website as well. Well, Shane, thanks for uh, coming out to Australia. I reckon you're a history maker. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. It's great to be here. History Makers.